and welcome to another episode of All Things Wise and Wonderful, an animal welfare podcast. My name is Jodie Gordon, and again I'm joined by my co-host, Henrietta Lineman. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, Hen. How are you? I'm very good. We are set in uh, my freezing cold garden. We are sat outside, yes. Um, first time we've been able to do this together, so... Yeah, we decided to do it outside because our guest today is my husband. <laughs> yes, he is. Today we are talking all things horse racing. We've obviously been building him up a little bit over the last couple of episodes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, without further ado, uh, let's introduce Dr. Douglas McRobbie. Dougie, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Yeah, pleasure. So... Um, yeah, following obviously the Grand National yesterday, and we had Cheltenham Festival, two big obviously horse racing meets of the year, yes. and we're here this week to talk all things horse racing, um, look at some of the uh, bad headlines it gets, and actually delve a little bit deeper into the real thing. So, um, obviously, Douglas, tell us what you do as a role. So basically, I'm a equine vet. That um, my main role is actually we work a lot with sports horses and race horses. Um, basically a, a focus on preventative medicine and uh, yeah, taking care of horses in the veterinary manner. Okay, so we'll dive a little bit deeper into that as we go along then. Um, but as we do with all our guests, let's start with a little bit about uh, you and your pet history first of all. Obviously we know from Hen the pets that you've got now. You always have pets? Yes, yes, so I've grown up with um, Labradors and cats and uh, ponies and horses all my life really uh, since I was a young boy uh, I used to do pony club and things and uh, show jumping a lot so yeah horses have been a big part of my life and we, we it was really sad this week you lost your childhood horse didn't you Callie yes yes she's, she reached a good old age but unfortunately um, we had to say goodbye to her just yesterday yeah yeah this age got the better of her Oh no. Yeah. Yeah, you'd had her since you were 14, did you say? Yeah, so that's a good 18 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. they had a fall from her, so her legacy lives on. And the legacy yes. lives on, eh? Yes, yeah, so we've still got the, yeah, got the fall. So and uh, so how did you get into veterinary medicine then? So basically, I used to work as an assistant trainer for a national hunt uh, trainer up in Fife. And um, a vet came onto the yard to uh, carry out a few procedures, and uh, I asked him. I thought, oh, I'd always wanted to be a vet, but um, never really got the grades at school. And uh, he that's familiar, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> and he kind of just encouraged me and said, you know, have you, have you been to uni before? And I said, yeah, I did a zoology degree. And he was like, oh, you'll get in. Six months later, I applied for vet school and was in and studying. Wow, which vet school did you go to? Went to uh, the Edinburgh, so the Royal Dick Vet okay. College. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was a brilliant place. To, yeah. And then from, from leaving vet school, where did you go from there? So I started working in a mixed animal practice, so proper James Harriet style, farm, equine and uh, small animals. And then after a period there, I moved to an equine-only role uh, in Fife, and then did an internship in an equine hospital down here in Yorkshire, then out to South Africa, where I worked with the racehorses out there, and now in my current role, working with the racehorses. So. 
brought you back to the same place in Yorkshire. Yep, full circle. <laughs> well, it's the home of horses, really. The home of horses, yeah. In the north, at least. Yeah, definitely. Yes, <laughs> not, not that separate, in the north. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Any questions for... That you well, it's very difficult because I know it all. So yeah. <laughs> anything you want to ask that you've never found out? Him? Oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> this is the moment, isn't it? To ask. Put me on the spot. Is there anything you want to say that you've never said before about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. What would you consider was your your first pet as opposed to just growing up with animals? Uh, so my first pet was a um, it was a little rescue kind of mixed mixed dog from uh, a shelter in Persia and uh, yeah it was just this little, little naughty what was her name? Mixture. she was called Holly and she used to keep running away she like a terrier cross? Uh, all sorts you couldn't really tell it was just a complete <laughs> mixture um, but a small small breed but yeah just a total mix is that the one that there's um, hilarious photos of your your brother holding was that a cat? That's a cat. Oh. Yes. So, although although Douglas is um, very 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 animal orientated, um, not all of your family <laughs> love animals quite so much. No, my brother doesn't really do much with animals, but uh, my sister's very equine related. She still yeah. rides. And, and your mum and your mum used to work um, in Weatherby, didn't she? For the wasn't it for the bud stop? What did she do? Yeah, she used to work for uh, in the racing industry. And um, she also used to work on a yard where they produced show hunters and also uh, train young thoroughbreds as well before they went into their role as a, a racehorse. So the book and she was younger. Yeah, yeah. She encouraged us. Yep, very supportive. I always had ponies and horses. So. Well, excellent. Well, let's um, let's dive straight into our kind of main subjects of the day then: horse racing. Um, I'm going to start with a few statistics, really, because statistics is where we can base all of this from. Because yeah. obviously the headlines that always come out of uh, certainly Cheltenham and the Grand uh, National Meet every year is the amount of horses that, that die during horse racing. Yeah. But there's never a huge amount of statistics behind it. So I just want to put a few figures on it. Yeah. There's an estimated million horses in the whole population in the UK yeah okay yep. there's uh, in 2018 there were 258,000 registered horses okay whatever okay. that means so whether that's registered um, the British Horse Racing Authority uh, says there's approximately 14,000 yep. horses involved in horse racing in the UK okay um, so that obviously training for it and and, and, uh, and going from there so and then when you look at the the statistics of horses that are dying we're looking at uh, approximately uh, 150 to 200 a year over the last 10 years mm -hmm. have died obviously a majority of that is in national hunt um, there are horses that are dying in flat racing as well yeah and uh, we'll talk to you in a bit Doug about the injuries that obviously cause those deaths a little bit in a, in a bit but but when you look at the bigger picture as well Horse racing has been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, yeah. It's an integral part of, I would say, um, actually worldwide of, of uh, culture. Um, there's huge amounts of money involved. And when you look at the betting, um, there's even in 2020, um, there was four billion pounds um, 
placed in off course betting yeah. um, right. just in, in turnover I mean that's gone down um, probably as a result of because we can now uh, easily access betting at casino levels yeah. and, and other sports due to mobile devices people have moved a little bit away from horse racing but still four billion pounds is a huge amount of money um, there are 18,000 enterprises uh, raising horses for horse racing um, so huge yeah. huge numbers of people involved so I think it's far more complicated and we'll look at some of the reasons behind it absolutely it's not a and black and white subject at all certainly not no more specifically with regards to the Grand National, you know, there's big prize money. You're talking about uh, £561,000 for the winner. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's a lot of money and I think, I think it's a million pounds in prize money yeah. in total just for one race. Um, yeah. So they're kind of some of the, some of the statistics. Um, I think when you look at horse racing from a point of view of its... Uh, regulation um, yeah there seems to be a lot of you know when you look up uh, huge amounts of regulation regarding safety and obviously you know your role as part of that isn't it so yeah so it's the British Horse Racing Association so the BHA is responsible for regulating the rules um, and the industry standards and they have a huge emphasis on welfare don't they and health and welfare of horses involved yeah it's, it's massive and they also have to be very transparent yeah. so they, and they, they try to be as transparent as possible pub publishing statistics and um, yeah just keeping everyone in the loop and what's going on there's 10,000 races held in the UK okay a year um, and that's over a thousand roughly 1500 fixtures so different race days and um yeah, there's roughly about 10 horses in each race, so you're talking at roughly 90,000 runners a year. So it's a lot, you know, starting, 90,000. Yeah, so that goes back to, if there are 14,000 horses involved and, and 90,000 starters, that's looking at, you know, seven or eight races per horse, really, yeah. on average. Yeah, on average, yeah. and it's usually, with these runners, a lot of the running is actually over the flat rather than national hunt, so it's a 60-30 split, really, uh, flat to national hunt. And obviously, you you talked in your introduction about the fact that your your role is around prevention. So, what does that? Yeah. Mean? So basically, it's not really a role of all oh, the horses injured. We come out and see it. Basically, we we go on and we we maintain these athletes. So um, we're constantly seeing them trot up. We're constantly assessing whether there's any uh, distress or or pain, and and basically we have to keep them on top form. Really, if they're if they're under the weather or they're they're suffering in any way, they're never going to run to their full performance. So it's actually no benefit for the owner or trainer to have the horses suffering so or in pain. Can you talk us through the day in the life of Douglas McRobbie? Like, you, what do you do? You get up in the morning and you go to collect yes. someone to help you. You've got people that you take with you, a second pair of hands, don't yes, you? Yes, so I take an assistant with me to hold the horse and assist me in, in certain procedures. And basically we, we chat with the trainer and work closely with the trainer to see they're assessing all the horses every day and uh, any horses that kind of flag up on whether they're maybe not reaching their full potential or not moving 100%. Uh, we'd have a look at whether we're assessing their... Um, 
bloods to see if there's any underlying infections or anything going on or whether there's lameness or anything during the um, the training regime um, it's quite a complicated you know role because these horses for, for trainers you when you train a horse they have to adapt to the role that they're doing so the body has to adapt to what they're going to be prepared for at the race course so if you don't work them hard enough at home then they're at risk of getting injured on the course yeah but if you work them too hard before a race they're at risk of getting injured at home injured at home so it's a fine line between um kind of protecting them but also uh the horses getting exposed to I suppose it's a bit like being the doctor and physio for your top football team. Football, rugby team, that sort of thing, yeah. But ultimately, I guess you make the decision as to whether they're fit enough to run. So not fitness-wise, but um, they certainly, at every course, there is vets, BHA-registered vets, that will assess the welfare and the the soundness of the horse at the races. Because it's a trot-up, is that right, before the race? Yeah, so they get assessed, and if any of them look lame, they'll get pulled out of the the race. And it doesn't benefit anyone uh, shipping the horse all the way down there just to see. So the trainers want them to, you know, want to be sure that before they send them to the races... So one of the big things is if there's a race the next day, you have to go and you have to... Yeah, if there's any concerns. I mean, these trainers are very um, experienced, so... A lot of them, yeah, a lot of them will, will, will assess. But any concerns, then we would give the green light. Yeah, and so you go to, you've got, you know, not that many yards. You've got a good handful of yards or something on your books, and you go every day to the same yards, don't you? Yes, there's always something something to do. So these horses yeah. are checked pretty much every day by... Yeah, we're on yards. All, all these race yards we're on daily, six days a week at least, and then on-call vets are on on Sunday as well. Because so. the interesting thing about it, obviously, is... It's recognised that it's a high risk for the horses. Yeah. There's often these horses are forced to do this. But that's not actually the case, is it? Because No, not at all. One of the most natural things that a horse wants to do is gallop. So uh, the actual sport itself, the, the act of running in a herd, is actually quite quite natural. But um, I think the, the biggest problem is that, um, you know, injury takes place with horses in any kind of sport or leisure activity even messing about in the field or you know on their own in the field they can injure themselves so and even like uh, you know another stats bring out another stat is this um you know 100 horses a year are killed on our roads mm. just from people like exercising the horse on the road i'm not saying it's the horse's fault or the owner's fault but it's yeah. it's an activity in which you take the horse out and and yeah. it puts it in danger so um and i think probably when we 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 sum that up that's the thing that's the thing is you there is always risk in all of these things there's a far bigger picture isn't it and um ultimately everyone would like to see that there were no deaths at all in any activity um yeah that puts it at risk but but that's not the reality i think uh with horse racing you've got this balance between trying to make it as safe as possible um against the you know to avoid all of those against the fact that actually it's an activity that um, that has gone on that has huge implications not just for the horses but everyone involved yeah. so all of those people that are working in that industry see yourself yeah. Yeah. but um, you know it's you can't just turn it off by saying oh well horses are getting killed therefore we're no longer doing yeah. and actually some of those safety things which I was going to ask you about 
is sometimes it's it's counterproductive, isn't it? So people say, oh well, they should lower the fence height. Yeah, they actually tried doing that, and um, basically, if you lower the fences and make them smaller, then the speed of the race increases. So they actually are going over the fences a lot faster. Uh, so it's not as simple as that, but the the BH have invested a huge amount of money into um, trying to reduce these risks and and designing on of the fences themselves. So the shape of the fences, um, the points at which they should take off, and they've also uh, now ensure that the horses entered into the race have um, competed to certain standards so that they they're able to do the race. So yeah. you know, a long long time ago they could just they could enter if there was enough space. So there's 40, 40 horses allowed in the Grand National, and um, if there was a space, you could fill it. Now there's a requirement that you've, you know, you have to meet certain standards before you can go around the course. And that's the same with jockeys, though, isn't it? As well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, before, yeah. like, you you would have amateur jockeys who really yeah. were amateurs, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Um, whereas now you have to, you have to pass tests as a qualified jockey. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They will go through training and then they become uh, qualified. Yeah, qualified jockeys. Yeah, it's an interesting subject because I suppose a lot of people feel that because money is being made and because betting is happening that you're therefore making a commodity of an animal. Um, but this goes down to all animals. It, it, you know, back to our harking on about breeding and breeding dogs or you know, there is an industry in animals and it is, I suppose, a bit ugly to think about money side of things. But like you say, this keeps an entire, you know, industry going and people, their livelihood. I mean, the thing is, the, the, the biggest thing is that a lot, in, in, in my experience, no one goes into racing for the money with regards to owning a horse because it, it's more of a passion. hobby and a passion. Um, the act of owning a horse and then going to the races owning that horse is, is a lot different to going as a spectator and people are incredibly passionate about the sport um, to actually make money as an owner is, is pretty hard but when you get that one one good horse that pays for the rest of the rest and from of the a horses. from a cost point of view then looking at that how much uh, do you know how much it costs then to keep a racehorse? When you when you kind of gather everything in from your trainer to your food to everything like that, because uh, I mean this is twenty years ago now when I did equine kind of just basic welfare stuff. The general figure, if you want to keep a horse, is five hundred pound a month. If yeah, you, wanna, you know that's just to keep a as horse. Just a, a, a not pet a racehorse, horse. Yeah, yeah, just as a exactly. pet horse. No, you should be looking at five hundred pound a month. Yeah, no, it's a lot more expensive. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So racehorses, you've got training fees, vet fees, failure fees, and it will vary from trainer to trainer, and obviously how often you race the horse. But um, yeah, it's not a, a cheap thing to do. So it takes huge investment. With yeah. A, with oh, a, yeah. it's not little reward, is it? Because we've talked about huge prize money for big races, but that's a bit like saying, "Oh, I'm going to become the next." Uh, Usain Bolt or something it's because not yeah, everyone does it it's kind of think you want to do <laughs> yeah you might think you want to do it and every horse yeah like you, yeah. Like you say every horse race owner probably thinks they're going to win the next big race but the reality is that for a majority of them they don't oh yeah most horses uh, it costs to keep they never make the money but the one or two will complete you know will pay for the rest so it's, it's just a big gamble really but as I say I think people are in it for the sport and the passion of it 
And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, going into this side of the industry, when you were growing up, you wanted to be a vet. You didn't necessarily want to be a racehorse vet, you wanted to be a vet. And your interest is in the welfare of animals, mainly horses. Um, And I think that your job especially is is very re- rewarding because you're w- you're working with the best horse it sounds ridiculous but they're you know yeah. they're, the, yeah. they're the top horses and therefore you're oh they're the professionally used horses are one of the best they're, they're much better looked after than, than any other horses around and um, i think they're uh, constantly under yeah and i think that's sure. that's i mean we talk about that with uh, a little bit with um dogs and and um the grooming side of it wasn't yeah. it? and the creative grooming and everyone how criticizes how cruel it is but actually when somebody has such a passion for the animal oh, actually yeah, what they yeah. want to do is look after it to, to its best to make yeah. it the best so um i think there's um there is probably some underhand things that go on in any industry which is gets bad press yeah. and makes you know the few bad eggs make the, the whole thing look bad um i think there's probably some misinformation certainly i think i probably touched on it in the last one where i said all horses get you know killed when they're no, when they're no good uh, yeah. but actually that's so not the reality no so there's a massive um like sector of rehoming of racehorses or retraining of racehorses so basically a, a racehorse on the on the flats career is relatively short and uh, you're looking at kind of the kind of finishing at about eight or nine on the flat really right and then um, then they get a lot of people uh, take them them out of the race yards and uh, change career. Certainly when I had a horse growing up um, and I kept my horse on a livery yard, there were at least three or four ex-race horses owned by, you know, people um, as as pets to go hacking on or do the odd kind of um, show on uh, local They go into other sports, do they? Yeah, they do. So nowadays, thoroughbred is sought after for a lot of different... Um, sectors of the equine you know so eventing they're steering towards the thoroughbred side rather than the kind of um european warm bloods that were, were out there and i th- i think you mentioned uh, you've mentioned this in the past is it kato star yeah yeah Which horse star racing fans did very well as a dressage horse there you go yeah. so um, yeah, can be retrained we can all change our careers and still make a success <laughs> eh? i am um, yeah i mean i in my day-to-day the job there's very very few horses that I have to put down uh, a lot less than when I was actually working in general practice and when you were in mixed practice well when I was in mixed practice because I did mixed practice for a while um, the horses and ponies that you would go and see some of them were really not kept in the best conditions you know? and I think this is this is the big issue if I go back to what we talked about a million horses being kept in this country so um, very very few of them relatively are kept as as horse racing horses we're only talking about 14,000 so thousands and thousands of horses out there and you know you have to say that obviously a majority of horse owners know what they're doing with regards to looking after their horse but there's still a, a minority that don't know how to look after a horse or maybe they do and they don't do it properly. Yeah. And some of the welfare issues that that you that I've seen uh, from my career in the past with regards to the neglect of horses, whether it comes from um, not feeding them properly, uh, not understanding their requirements with regards to you know even 
barrier, barrier ship and you yes. know and uh, um, too many times every year you see stories of horses coming in with the Aladdin's Cows, feet yeah. and stuff like this yeah. where they've been neglected. Lam- laminitis is one of the Laminitis, worst, yeah, you know. Um, is um, and is it actually abundant throughout the horse population with people that don't uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult ignorant, yeah, um, um, from what I understand it can be very difficult once it starts to then get rid of it but it's quite preventable is that right yes yeah just keeping them in the right conditions a big big deal and obviously um, these horses are designed to to be out on rough land um, and nowadays grass is so well cultivated that it just yeah, it's just too yeah it's too good for them it's basically like them eating bacon sandwiches and burgers all the time and uh, they're like, yeah, their feet they, they become obese and their, their feet suffer for it and the problem is you're dealing with a horse that's the weight of about half a ton yep. 500 kilos and uh, on these spindly little legs and so it's all supporting through the those four feet um, and then you see the issues with uh, those other welfare needs you know basic behavioral needs talk about company and uh, you know horses the way they interact with each other is quite important as a as a herd species and well, yet I so many are kept in stables on this idea that they can see and smell each other and communicate but yeah. actually communication is very physical with horses yeah and it's all body language a lot yeah. of it is body language and then even worse than that is you see horses out in fields on their own or they're in with another species and it's kind of like well yeah, but they're not. <laughs> well, yeah. but that goes back to there's a very uh, you know the saying um, someone's got your goat. Yeah. That comes from racing. So you used to travel your horse to the race course with its companion goat, and to distress the horse and make it rubbish at running, you would steal the goat. Yeah. They so are very yeah, it, was sab- it was sabotage. No, there are a couple of horses out there that um, are quite neurotic and uh, just really really need company and we, you see the little ponies keeping them company and things that have to go down to the races I think the biggest thing in, in the in the racing industry is that you're dealing with people that, that are educated and know about horses I mean they're well, real horsemen these are qualified people aren't they yeah and so th- I, I think the biggest the biggest problem is that um, injuries occur that um, in any other kind of species or, or hu- humans um it's not a they can recover from whereas with horses it's it's very difficult i mean the the problem is they can't spend long periods of time on rest they get very distressed so if they've injured themselves you know if they've broken a leg or anything like that that long period of time on rest is quite distressing for them some don't cope very well and they can't spend long periods of time lying down yeah they get sores and so it's not really the uh the injury it's the, it's the problems not repairing the fractures but post-surgery complications like that so, so rehabilitation what, when for instance difficult. these horses are euthanized on the track after an injury what is the what is the most common injury that causes that so these direct so these sort of decisions are not taken lightly and so often if we can stabilize the fracture or immediately the horse is given pain relief uh, as soon as anything happens on the course and there are vets dotted around the course that can assist the horse very quickly they'll be there on site I mean in our local point to points there's three vets dotted around the course yeah uh, and the, you know in a very small period and in these big races there's much more vets there um, and with these 
there's certain injuries that you do know that they can't recover from. So if a fracture occurs and the bone sticks through the skin, uh, horses are very prone to infections. And uh, it's not just from the environment, but the way they're stabled as well, it just would not. That won't heal. No, it doesn't heal, so it goes down to immediate yeah. destruction. Uh, and then certain weight-bearing bones. Okay. But, but you know, veterinary medicine's advancing all the time, and there are injuries that, that couldn't be solved that can be now, and a lot more of these um, surgeries are occurring standing, so they do standing surgeries, so the horses remain upright, because there's a big risk that when they recover... You've got to recover half a ton of horse on a a weak structure, yeah. so the the kind of um, the the outcomes a uh, lot lower. And it's quite a high risk, so um, trying to reduce that complication. Uh, so standing surgery occurs now quite routinely. Because it's not just a basis decision. No one just from an owner's point of view, just look at it and go, well, I can't race that horse anymore, so you might as well. No, you'd be... Because mm. they'll look at, well, can this horse be retired, basically? Yes, exactly, yes. And you've got you've got other things. I mean, these owners do care a lot about their horses. I mean, they've created bonds with them, even though they're not on site. They do care a lot about the horses. and um, It doesn't usually come down to the money. It usually comes to the fact, is this horse going to suffer for a long period of time? In the rehabilitation of that injury, yeah, or is it better to um, prevent that suffering and, and, and call it a day? And I think that's always got to be the hardest decision, anyway. And that won't be the, everybody doesn't come to the same opinion. And I've you've probably seen this in um, small animal practice as well. Mm. That decision of how much do you put an animal through yes. to mm. to help it recover from a. a, a a condition or or and I've a injury it's I've done and some people, people take a decision that's not fair to put that yeah, animal through absolutely. that yeah. and you see other ones where people will go through long expensive recovery processes where they never really recover yeah. and all these kinds of things and it's a it, it's, it's not a black and white decision no I often say to people just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should yeah so you know I I know that obviously someone like the super vet who is pioneering, um, but sometimes, arguably, should we be using prosthesis in in our animals? So we, c- we can, potentially now, but should we? So definitely something to talk about, but it brings us full circle back to these horses, which is, could they recover? They might recover, but is the recovery so awful and long and cruel, mm. and they'll be in insufferable pain for a long time then potentially yes and the psychological damage that that has on an animal to go through such pain for such a long period yeah they can't see the end of the tunnel can they they? don't they don't really know exactly animals live in the in In the the moment in the now and um which is why which is why miraculously they recover so well actually um because for instance a fracture in a, a, a small dog who doesn't necessarily bear much weight on that leg. Um, once that fracture's repaired, they don't psychologically keep thinking back to it and poor me. They're either sore or they're not, and uh, they're happy or they're not. Yeah. Um, so certainly it's something to... And I know I think some of our 
listeners and certainly those that are against horse racing will just look at it and come, we've just summed up all the reasons why it shouldn't happen because of all these injuries and yeah. what can happen but I think the, I think I have to remember that the reality is that every animal that is domesticated um, is domesticated because humans exploit yeah we've exploited all of these animals yeah, for our own entertainment as well as our own resource yeah, and that and so it's a far more complicated process than just to say that we shouldn't do it um i would only advocate that we always look for the best way to do that from a welfare point of view yeah. but you know as we've touched on with regards to improving standards actually sometimes that can be counterintuitive so you've got to look at a much bigger picture yeah. you know um if you just don't do it it doesn't really make any sense because sadly humans are driven to be able to bet on things for their whole life and it's kind of yeah. <laughs> um yeah. there's there's greyhound racing there's cockfighting there's uh, there's animal fighting all around and but the thing is about something like fighting is that they are being sent out to be injured and yeah, there's and a winner there, and a loser there's a winner yeah. and a loser whereas right. something with racing nobody is going there to harm a horse no. you know and and the horse does enjoy it this is something that we touched on earlier this is a natural process for a horse to run. Absolutely. Yeah. If they don't enjoy it, they won't perform. In which case, they retire them and change their career. And interestingly, yeah. you know, a lot of horses will run once or twice, look, look, and not when show you get any form, and, and then that's like it. it. And, and, so and look, when you get the jockey who falls off, the horse carries on running. Yeah, they do, and actually, <laughs> they're the ones that actually can cause it. Problem. Yeah, they can, and there's I mean, a. Is the race itself cruel, or is the fact that they could potentially get injured? Is that is that the only reason why people are upset about it? Yeah. Don't get I think me wrong. Horses I are struggle to, you know, I worry when I watch something like the Grand National because I don't want to see something awful happen. Um, and I think a lot of people feel like that. I think a lot of people are feeling very mixed about the entire thing because I think that they can see that these horses are beautifully looked after. Um, top of the range horses with a lovely life um, and enjoy their life but it is very upsetting to see a horse die on the yeah, track absolutely. Um, and, and uh, it's 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 awful and i think but interestingly i mean the grand national and cheltenham obviously you know are the headline ones that happen but i think the change then um you know from when we used to watch it as children and the conditions to now and even in the last 20 years for those that watch the Grand National from start to finish you never get seen you get shown the end but actually by the end of it so you only get prize money for the first 10 horses yeah and pretty much everybody other horse after that gets pulled out because yeah. it's, well, it's now they have no chance of getting in the top 10 they, yeah. they pull them out because mm -hmm. they used to be the eye this adage of I'm going to get this horse round because of the honour of getting a horse round the track. Yeah, no, now the jockeys are actually encouraged to pull them up if they don't think they've got a chance and it's not it's not worth yeah, it's not worth the risk of the horse. And they'll get the the stewards will actually call them up on it if they you know, if they finish miles behind rather than pulling them up. Yeah. There's no point putting them through it. So so I think that's you know yeah. I think those things have certainly changed because there used to be headlines about oh, you know, and they used to interview the jockeys at the start, oh I'm you know you're a thousand to one outsider. What's your ambition? Oh, just to get around. Yeah, you that's know? not the case anymore. No. <laughs> and uh, and I think that that's we have to see that improvements are being made, have been made, and will continue to be made. And I think that you've got to look at yes, 
where the risks are higher, what can you do to reduce that? And um, you talk uh, about the condition of the ground. Yeah. You know, if the horse is running quicker, it's at greater risk. Yeah. But actually, is it? And then there's a there's almost a uh, an ideal kind of surface, isn't there? And if it's too hard, it's yeah. going to cause too much risk. Yeah. So basically, the these sort of jumps, do, the jump racing rarely becomes firm. So firms the, the hard basically they water the, the fields and things like that you want so, some grip so you want some where is the flat give. is that a different no again flat races the, the the tracks will get watered so these these race courses are maintained like about, golf courses but what really. about all weather courses all weather courses yeah so the the track themselves is selected so that's the safest i suppose is it uh, no i don't think there's really any because there's still injuries occur on all weather surfaces as well. Yeah. I think the biggest bulk is actually having the horse conditioned to the races that they're doing. Being prepared. And this is where we come in from the start. If there's any sign of lamenesses through the training, you ba- you back off. You allow the yeah. body to adapt to the to the training. And what sort of thing are you finding in training? So what are you looking for? So you can get, and you'll see it in uh, professional rugby players and things as well, but stress fractures. Mm-hmm. So that can occur where the bone hasn't adapted to the forces. And so the bone starts to create fatigue and uh, they start to show lameness and things. Like and that. if they it's ran on a stress fracture? It's when they can, they can fracture, yeah. And so that, that becomes a problem, that's what becomes the proper fracture. That becomes a pro- problem. A lot of the time though in these, um, nowadays, so it used to be that these stress fractures would propagate, but now the injuries are actually just the leg just landing wrong or there's a few, there's a lot of, uh, injuries that occur between fences as well so unfortunately um, the long mile that was racing the Grand National uh, had to get put down from a fractured leg but it was between the fences that the fracture occurred right. I think and how much training do the jockeys get in identifying what's yeah, wrong so with these the guys, I mean these guys are very uh, clued up and they ride thousands of horses so uh, if anything, if they if they feel anything go amiss underneath, they'll pull up straight away. And you've got cameras, stewards, everything watching. That it, these guys are under a lot of pre- pressure to find. They can't go around on a lame horse, or they'll get they'll get um, pulled up on it. Yeah. Yeah. Penalised. So. And that's back to you saying it's you know heavily. Heavily regulated. Regulated. Yeah. And the thing is that there's also like a lot of rumours going around about drugging horses and things like that but um, all the, the horses do get blood tested for drugs so that you know it doesn't benefit anyone to, to run and when you're talking drugs. about drugging this is me because I don't by the way I don't do horses <laughs> and we don't talk about this because you know who wants to talk about work after work yeah. so we actually don't talk about this it's quite interesting um, when you're talking about drugging what, what drugs are you talking about yeah, so, so running on pain relief Okay. And things like that. So because some people, I think, would think that you're talking about things like adrenaline and stuff. That's not performance and heart no, drugs. Yeah, you, no, those will get picked up um, really easily because it's all adapted from um, like sports, you know, the Olympics and the people. Well, there was also there was also the should we call it the conspiracy theory, the rumor, and all of that that all performance enhancing drugs are tested on horses before they get to the athletes. You see. So if oh, the horses yeah. can get away with it, then maybe the athletes can. <laughs> well, no, there's too much. No, they thing, don't do that. But they do in Australia. Well, well, the th- going back to uh, Jodie's point is that um, if you get a positive drug test, that is, you know, the fine, uh, the the 
trainer gets fined, the horse gets ruled out, they get suspended. It's massive repercussions. There was a big scandal about a couple of years ago, wasn't there, with a trainer in Newmarket? Based in Newmarket? Wasn't there some drug Oh, I'm not sure. Allegations there. And he got exactly. I got struck off. Yeah. So they get yeah they get uh, banned and they can't run any horses. So it doesn't it doesn't benefit anyone. It's not worth it. Um, and my role is that when we administer pain relief and things, we have to make sure that it's well before any races occur. And what else? Because um, there was something very odd that I remember hearing in Australia. And I don't think we do it here. Bloodletting. So is that when you, when you bleed bleed a horse? Yeah. So you take away a certain amount of blood, such as quite a large proportion of the blood, and that releases in the cascade something called erythropoietin. But basically, it kind of um, there is a performance enhancing effect on a longer scale. But we don't do that in the UK. No, it's not. I think it's that's not, a it's an archaic thing. Yeah, I just remember an equine vet talking to me about it after working for a long time in Australia and I was absolutely horrified I was like I don't think you do that here Whereas it, I mean I think when you get betting and money there's always um, trying to get somebody who's yeah. trying to seek an advantage oh, yeah. uh, uh, in one way or another and you know how it's the uh, if everybody's doing it then you know mm. then is it okay no you know but it's kind of until it's banned is a drug okay to take and yeah. it's um, but I, I know with some of the dealings that I've had with greyhound racing in the mm. past well, um, yeah no <laughs> greyhound racing has got no the regulations is much less is much less but the tricks uh, of little bits even with, you know of you know feeding a dog a huge meal before it races to slow it down because mm. everything's about grading in in that so you know if you want your really fast dog to be dropped down a grade you slow it down but you want to slow it down legally so yeah. You know, giving it a big food or, um, you know, reducing its uh, little tag under their thing yeah. that sticks there, which means they... So they can't put their neck out. Yeah, yeah, properly, so that reduces just little subtle things to slow it down that they're not going to get caught at, so they get dropped down. And all of those things is... Because horse racing is similar in the fact it's graded, isn't it? And you yes, you've got handicaps. And, and you get so handicaps. Yeah. And yeah, but it's not really... I mean... I was surprised when I went into the racing industry how transparent it is and actually the main thing that these trainers are trying to do is get the best out of their horses. Yeah. And I, that proves that they're good trainers. I mean, I, yeah, I think much worse thing goes on in other industries. And I think it that... It has to be transparent because, um, yeah, people go around the yards. Is it? Well, uh, yes, absolutely. I had a friend come to visit us. Um, with their little boy and their little boy was two and a half and he was obsessed with horse racing very strange but he loved horse racing and um, they said could we go to watch the gallops the Molten gallops so I took them up to the gallops and um, this little boy was having the time of his life watching these horses training and there was a trainer there who came over and started speaking to us and he was overjoyed that this little boy was so excited about horse racing and he invited us straight away to his yard told us to follow uh, follow him um, in our car we went to the yard he showed us all round took us to all of his horses also the little Shetland pony that was there just as a little companion for some of the other horses um, and gave this little boy a jockey silk 
Um, and it was just absolutely fantastic. So he was completely open and transparent and didn't worry at all about having people come to his yard um, and see the horses. These horses were in tip-top condition. The stables were immaculate. Yeah. There were yeah. so yeah. many people working there, um, keeping the place running. Um, and it was just a fantastic experience. Um, and yeah, it was really great, actually. Yeah, no, and I'd like to think, and probably you can um, either say whether I'm right or wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure most uh, horse horse racing owners, if you wanted to go and see their stables, would probably invite you in, some by appointment only, obviously, but would still be happy. Yeah, the training, expensive. obviously they have to be careful because of these um, drug testings and things, that even if you have, if you've been eating chocolate or anything, that will test up as a positive for caffeine uh, in horses so they don't let people just come into the yards because yeah. they can feed them stuff <laughs> yeah. that will test positive but at the same time they hold open days and things like that this is a, an open day around here isn't there they do a, yeah. an entire open yeah. day where you yeah. go around all of the all of yeah, the yards and also I'm going to put it out there is this an argument or not tradition you know tradition of the the racing society how long it's been going on for I'm not saying that that is the only reason why to keep it going um, but there is a heritage involved in the racing society isn't there yeah know? I mean it's very historic and I, and I think we could put, you know I, I don't necessarily always stick with the tradition because th no. that was the old fox hunters argument yes um, well, well it's no. tradition that's why we should keep it well you know we used to send children up chimneys as a tradition as well, and it's kind of like you can. Tradition isn't always the, the be or lend or. I think um, I think we can adapt any industry towards uh, modern standards, whatever it is. And if it doesn't, if it can't adapt, then I think that's it. I think the word adapt is exactly yeah. right. So for something that does have a heritage to it and a love um, from many people getting rid of something is is not the way forward i think that working with it making it better making it safer um, making it as transparent as possible so that people feel comfortable with any yeah. sort of industry yeah. regarding animals yeah. is the only way forward really yeah and, and i think if anyone's look if it, from the outside if people do not like horse racing and uh think that it's uh, you know wrong do you research you know there's a lot of information on the british horse racing authorities website answers a lot of questions if that doesn't answer your questions go and speak to a trainer go and speak yeah. to a, an, an equine vet even that might even answer some of those mm. more complicated questions and if you still don't like it then fair enough don't go horse racing then but come at your argument with some with some knowledge i think so because I think that, you know, we go back to this point of people who, people who own horses as pets and who own horses as part of dealing in horses, because there's lots of people that do that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no qualification for doing any of that. You do not need to be qualified to own a horse. And that is the greatest risk to welfare, is when you've got untrained people who don't know what they're doing trying to do something. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have to look at the horse racing industry. is full of highly qualified people, highly knowledgeable people who are working towards trying to do the best for the horses in what is acknowledged as a activity that is 
of high risk. Yeah. Would you agree, Dougie? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, thank you very much for joining us today anyway, Dougie. I think uh, if anyone's got any questions, please email us yeah. on um, askingwisewonderful at gmail. Maybe we'll get you back again, Dougie, to answer some of those questions. Yeah, and um, uh, before we go, as usual, uh, we just touched on a few bits from the news. Yeah, sad, some sad things in the news actually. Um, well, let's do the let's do the happy one first. No, end on the happy. No, always end, end on the happy. Okay, okay. So I, the sad one would be um, uh, an eighty-five-year-old lady, um, Lucille Downer, has been attacked by two dogs um, who managed to get into her garden through a, from an adjacent property through a hole in the fence um, and unfortunately attacked her um, and, and she sadly died um, which is absolutely awful and absolutely tragic. Um, the dogs were tranquilised and taken away and euthanised humanely um, and their DNA has been tested I think to find out whether it's on the um, dangerous dogs list um, and I think that yeah and the sad thing is that, that we'll look at that as going um, people will look at that as going it's the breed it's the breed but there's much bigger issues going on the mm -hmm. tragic loss of life um, that uh, clearly was avoidable um, and actually we need what should be looked at is is how how did it come that those two dogs mm. were behaving in a in such a way that they first of all are escaping from their property and then attacking a it's very uh, unusual attacking a person very unusual to attack um, I suppose um, sporadically you know what was their relationship with people to to certainly do that right. um, as a basic instinct two dogs together though um, always a completely different kettle of fish. It one is, dog, yeah. um, and it only takes one dog to have that driving um, factor for the other one to participate, and then of course you've got a completely different situation. So, um, yeah, really, really, really sad. Um, and you know, uh, what's going to happen now is everyone's going to make this a natural assumption it was pit bulls, mm -hmm. um, and uh, personally, having dealt with and handled many pit bulls in my life. Um, I never got bitten by one and some of those were trained to, uh, into dog fighting and some of them weren't um, yeah. just because the pit bull is a banned breed doesn't make them all dangerous towards people no. and there are many breeds out there and people will call on these other breeds to be banned and you, know, you get the bandwagon of all staffy types should be banned you know and then you get this reeling of different breeds that are all dangerous and it's not the breeds that are dangerous um, it's not always the the people um, that are doing things wrong either. There is a combination of a lack of understanding, yeah. um, and I think that's the the tragedy in this scenario. Is clearly who is responsible for those dogs doesn't understand what they're capable of doing, because if you understood what a dog is capable of doing, you wouldn't even allow, give it the opportunity to no. be able to escape from a garden. No. So there's a, there's a real lack of understanding and a real tragic story. And yeah. our, our thoughts go out to her family. Definitely. Um, we should also touch on um, the sad passing of Prince Philip. Um, yeah. 
and uh, much as he divided opinion, he was an ambassador for conservation. Um, he was the first president of the World Wildlife Fund back in Fantastic. 1961, did huge amounts for the conservation of animals and, uh, around the world, and he should be rightly celebrated for that, um, whatever our thoughts are about the royal family. So, um, again, thoughts to his family yeah, and everyone definitely. who knew him. Yeah. Um, I just want one small piece of news as well, which actually is uh, a little bit older and probably should have come up in the last one, but um, good news about those who are owning chickens these days. Um, so the bird flu um, kind of crisis for now is over. Um, and uh, for all of you that were keeping your chickens inside uh, on the instructions of the government, um, they can now be left back out again. Be free chickens. Be free chickens be free. and let them back outside again. Chicken run in real life. Um, so let's hope the the bird flu crisis um, stays away uh, this time. The sad thing about the bird flu thing is, of course, that um, the big panic about bird flu, a bit like swine flu, is everyone was worried that it would uh, move across to humans and become a worldwide pandemic. Oh, no. oh the irony. And um, here we are in a worldwide pandemic. And, uh, but at least the chickens can get back out again. Yeah. On a happier note, and I suppose coming full circle back onto the racing, uh, obviously the Grand National was run yesterday, and it has been won for the first time ever by a woman, Rachel Blakemore. Congratulations, Rachel. Which is fantastic. Um, really, really doing something for the women, which I think is fantastic. So congratulations. Proving that it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, the horse can still win the race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, congratulations to Rachel. Um, so we've had to take a pause during this recording for a hailstorm in the middle of April. But, and now uh, it's beautiful sun. And now it's beautiful sunshine. So um, we shall wrap this up and go and enjoy it. Uh, yeah. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Don't forget, uh, you can email us, like I said, at askthingswiseandwonderful at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Facebook site, and you can go and comment on there. Dougie, thank you very much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Now, go and cook that roast. <laughs> <laughs> and we shall see you all next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everybody. I've got to go. Got to leave.